Good morning. Welcome. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene, and I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. If you're not new here among us, you know that last week we talked about obedience. Obedience being better than sacrifice. And I used the story from my childhood, as I often do, about paying the price for disobedience. I suffered some great embarrassment as a child. I told you that one of the instruments that I played, I was a musician before, was the trumpet. It's a disgusting instrument. You can go back and watch last week's message to find out why. But the main point was that I duped myself, not really just my parents. The joke was really on me for the disobedience. Well, it was one of the very rare occasions where I actually learned a lesson from something. And so I found that practicing was really important. So I began to practice my instrument a lot. And I became what they called back then a band nerd, complete with V-neck sweater vest and everything. Now, if you judged me by outward appearances, kind of a skinny kid playing the trumpet all the time, sweater vest, V-neck, you'd think by outward appearances that I was someone who got really good grades. And if you assumed that about me, you would have been wrong. I got terrible grades. I was a horrible student. If you know anything about me, you know that I used to suffer from a form of dyslexia. Made school really tough. They didn't have the same kind of resources back then that they do now, and they didn't know as much about it. So they worked on it, they treated it, but not so much. I got really, really bad grades. So essentially, I was an oxymoron. I'm not going to go further down. Well, a lot of word plays there. Anyway, <laughs> I was an oxymoron. I didn't make sense. And I suffered a lot of rejection as a result. And I don't know if you remember this, but you had a lineup at recess or in gym class. You line everybody up, and then you'd have a couple of team captains. And those team captains were the cool kids, right? And what did they do? They picked all the other cool kids first. And so I don't know if you know the feeling, what it feels like to be standing there and picked last or picked by concession, right? Oh, okay, we'll take the band nerd, come on, right? While they're high-fiving all the other cool, yes, we got Johnny, we're going to totally win, man, it's going to be awesome. And I'm just like, and so glutton for punishment, I would show up at recess instead of sitting at the nerd table with the other nerds, right? I should have done that, but I kept lining up every week. And so I spent a lot of my childhood Warming the bench. I knew what it was like to warm the bench until everybody was sick one day. And so they needed a warm body on the football field. So they put Eugene, the skinny band nerd, out there. Now, I got very, very excited about this because there was something that they didn't know. It was that I had been training, not in the playground, not on the field, but on the streets. You see, I would walk my dog as one of my chores around the neighborhood. And for some reason, there was a lot of loose dogs in my neighborhood, so I would get chased by dogs a lot. I was really fast. You've got to be really fast to outrun a dog. And also bees. 
I didn't like bees, and so I'd run from them, and they're surprisingly quick. So I was really fast, and so I knew all I need to do is get a hold of that ball. And once I do, that's it. Sure enough, I can't even remember how it happened. It's what a blur this was. I think someone fumbled it or something. I don't know. I got a hold of the ball and like a rocket, touched out. Look back, no one was even close. I think they were amazed. The bad nerd got the ball. So, touchdown. Now, I don't know if I'm the only one who does this, but I start to daydream and kind of fantasize, right? So now in my mind, the kids, they're like carrying me on, the, I got one touchdown, right? They're carrying me on their shoulders. There's a victory, but there's a float just for me in the town parade on the 4th of July, right? You do this kind of stuff. I'm awesome. Maybe I'll get a girlfriend now. You know, this is just great. It's fifth grade. So I'm just wandering around the other end of the field, like, like, just, I don't know what I'm doing. Still got the ball, I'm coddling it, it's awesome. Life is gonna be great now. And all the other kids, they don't even care. So what I don't know, there's something happening on the other side of the field, I don't know this. One of the cool kids, he sees a rock on the field. I guess his thinking was, I gotta clear it off because this band nerd's gonna trip over it or something, right? So he takes the rock and safely arcs it off the field, just throws it into the woods. All right. I don't know this. I don't know what he's thinking, nothing. I'm in la-la land. I'm, this is great, right? I'm a superstar. All I see out of the corner of my eye is something being thrown. So I see him doing this. Instinct. It just sets in. Got to catch it, right? So who, catching a rock is really not a good idea. Now, there's something else they didn't know. I could jump really high. Why? Because when you're getting chased by dogs, it's good to be able to vault a fence once in a while, right? So I can jump really high. And so I do, I jump for it, but remember the dyslexia thing? I don't have good hand-eye coordination. So I overshoot it and the rock hits me right in the forehead and I go down like a sack of potatoes. Now, you can laugh because I'm over it and it looked really funny. <laughs> so some of the kids are laughing, others are like, ah, oh, he's dead, right, because I fall down on the ground. So sure enough, even the cool kid who threw the rock, for anonymity's sake, will call him Harry B. Harry Burns comes up to me and he says, are you okay? Are you alive? Is everything okay? Yes, I'm fine. Big egg on my face. And sure enough, I go back in the lineup next week. But no one ever picks me. Now I'm a liability. So now it's over. So I spent most of my childhood, all through school, warming the bench, playing music. I got to high school. I found a way to be somewhat cool. I did rock and roll music. I switched instruments. My parents finally like, paid the rental fee for the trumpet or whatever, and I'm over it. So I'm going to move on to the guitar. I did. I barely graduated high school, barely, and I became a professional musician. That was kind of cool, but it wasn't cool enough. Inside me, I still had a lot of anger, a little angry about the way life turned out, about being a loser, a lot of discouragement. So you know what I did? Some of you do. I quit music. I stopped doing it. I decided to go back to martial arts. I'd done that as a kid. 
Oh yeah, I trained in a lot of different martial arts. I finally found the hardest one. I spent 10 years getting a black belt even after having a black belt in another style. And so you can picture like a Rocky movie, you know, the, the montage, that's like my favorite part of all these movies, whether it's like the A-Team or, you know, you gotta have a montage for that. So there's like the fight training montage. So you can picture me like, bam, punching someone in the face and then it, it cuts away to like the rock hitting mine. Like, oh, no, you know what I mean? So that, this whole thing going on for 10 years and the martial arts, isn't even good enough. Nope. I have to lift weights and get absolutely huge because that's the opposite of band nerd. And I don't just lift weights, I power lift. I want to get as strong as humanly possible so I can literally crush people. Then I'm going to call up the kid who hit me in the face with the rock and challenge him to a fight. <laughs> you know what happened? <laughs> absolutely nothing. It would have been totally crazy. Can you imagine that phone call? The guy's like in his 30s now. He's got kids and a wife. Like he looks astonished when I call. He hangs up the phone. The wife's like, what's the matter? Some guy called me who said that I hit him in the head with a rock in elementary school. And so he challenged me to a fight on the playground at 3 p.m. tomorrow. What'd you say? Like, you know. Nothing. I gotta take the kids to the game. You know, he's got responsibilities now. So Here's, here's the lesson. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. You'll see. But the immediate lesson is this. When you see people who by outward appearances look pretty amazing, they got that way because there's something wrong with them. <laughs> there's hurt on the inside. So I run a ministry now. I see the big guys come in and they're all jacked and huge. I'm like, it's okay. You have Jesus now. You know? So... Just think about that. Outward appearances. The Lord does not judge by outward appearances. We're going to learn that today. So let's jump right into the rest of the story. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Let's go for it. Starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him and said, what's wrong? They asked, do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Told you so. So we're back at Bethlehem. If you missed last week's message or you don't know where we are, the Lord has rejected Israel's first king. He's a head taller than everyone else. So Samuel's here and he's probably thinking it's going to go down like that. No. Now, have we learned our lesson yet? Bad king. We're going to get a new one and it's not the way you think it's going to be. Back at Bethlehem, remember Ruth? Check that out. Look at the genealogy at the end. It leads to Jesse and then David. 
here we are, right, in that section. So Saul does something like lining him up. He's like a team captain. He's going to start selecting people, and he does so at first by appearances. Eliab, Abinadab, Shimei. No, no, no. Jesse keeps presenting them, seven of his children. No. Got any more? (laughs) Samuel says, essentially, yeah, He's the youngest one. He's out shepherding the sheep. He's doing his thing. All right, get him. We're not going anywhere until I see the youngest one. Sure enough, he shows up. Now, the text kind of implies that he may be the smallest, but it doesn't really say that. It just says that he's the youngest. We're going to get that from somewhere else a little bit later. But anyway, Samuel knows the Lord's like, that's the king. So he anoints him. We went into that in the past, so I'm not going to go into that too much pours like olive oil on his head, anoints him to be king, and then he goes back to Ramah. He leaves. And that's really it. So here's what you have in the background so that you're not confused. You have Saul, who is the king, and then David, who is now anointed king, but it has not yet been confirmed. So as we go through the story, just keep that in mind. The Lord knows that's the king, but it's going to be in the future. We'll get there. Now, importantly, it says that the spirit of the Lord takes control of David. Then in the story, it cuts away to a different scene. So we're going to have this happen in these couple of chapters. So now, 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. So this is the current king, the first king, left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, a tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician, a band nerd maybe, (laughs) to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, and you soon will be well again. So quick sidebar, we're not going to get lost in this thought. God is just but God can use evil things to achieve his purpose. Think Pharaoh for the popular stories. So moving on with that being said, Saul basically says, all right, find me one of these musicians. Good idea. One of the servants remembers, ah, one of Jesse's sons. He's a good musician. He's also a warrior and he's handsome too. I guess that's helpful. So maybe he's kind of like a band nerd. I spent some time trying to be like David, I guess. So Saul, he sends messengers to Jesse, David's dad. And Jesse complies, and he sends David off with like kind of an offering. Sends him with a goat, a donkey loaded up with bread and a wineskin full of wine. Now, I want you to keep this in your back pocket or if you're taking notes, because this is going to be interesting. Jesse, David's dad, and Saul have at least two exchanges. Remember that. So here's one. He sends David because they sent messengers to him. And what happens is David becomes very close to Saul. Interesting. He becomes his armor bearer. So Saul sends word to Jesse again. Can I keep him? (laughs) Yes. And it says that David plays the harp for him or the lyre, depending on the version you're reading, and it soothes him. The evil spirit leaves when he does this cutaway scene. If we turn the page, we get to chapter 17, and we read about those pesky Philistines. 1 Samuel 17.1, the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Succo in Judah and Azekah in Ephesadamim. 
Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced one another on opposite hills with a valley in between them. Then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. So this is like a human tank. A weaver's beam. You got a picture like, if you know, what are they, four by eight? So those things you make decks out of that support decks. So he's got that on his back. He's this just giant guy. And here's what he's doing. He's going out and he's defying Israel. He's taunting them every day for 40 days. It'll tell us later. If you're reading along, it's a little bit later. It lets us know that. He's, ta- he's just, just challenging them. Send someone out to fight me. If they can beat me, we'll become your slaves. But If I beat you, you'll be our slaves. And that's the basic gist of it. It says that Saul and everybody, they're all terrified. Keep in mind that Saul's terrified here. Get to that in a minute. So here, there's something awkward that happens. At least I found it awkward. David, Jesse, and his family, they get reintroduced again. That's interesting. We kind of know who they are by now. But they get reintroduced, and it tells us that David's brothers, the three older brothers, they're in the camp, right? So we're assuming here that they're soldiers in the camp, they're fighting. And David's going back and forth, bringing supplies and stuff. So he's shepherding the sheep, he's helping his dad out, and he's going and visiting the camp. So it says that one day, Jesse sends him with some roasted grain, he sends him with 10 loaves of bread, and 10 blocks of cheese for the captain there. Maybe he's giving him a gift so that they don't send his brothers out. I don't know, but some people assume that. Now, when David gets there, he hears Goliath and his taunt. Whoa, that's crazy. Who is this Gentile Philistine to defy Israel? Then people are running away scared, and they're saying, did you hear the news? Saul has offered a reward for anyone who can kill him. For the champion of Israel, one of his daughters is a wife, and then his family is going to be exempt from taxes forever. David does something interesting. He keeps asking people the story over and over again. So what again is it? What again is it? And his brother Eliab gets a little annoyed. He's like, you're here just to watch the battle. Cut it out. But why is David asking over and over? He's kind of annoying people. Well, Saul hears about it, and he calls for him. And then we get an exchange between the two of them. I want you to keep something in mind. David, again, he's the youngest brother, possibly the smallest of them. Again, he's handsome. Why does it tell us that? Well, think about it. If you're really handsome, you don't have a scarred up face in martial arts. We used to get cauliflower ear. That's kind of ugly. And so if you're a fighter, you don't usually look very handsome, kind of like me, right? So, you know, he doesn't have any of those indicators. He's not a handsome guy, so how can he be a warrior? So just just picture this guy. Maybe a little smaller than average, not quite like the statue of David, and he's handsome. That doesn't look like a mean old warrior. But here's the thing. Despite appearances, David wants to come off the bench. So he wants to get involved here. He's a warrior, it said earlier. So now you have this interaction between Saul and David. They're face to face. Keep that in mind. 
So they're talking to one another, and Saul's like, are you kidding me? No way. He's been a warrior all his life. You're just a boy. He's like, get on out of here. It's not going to work. David said, wait a minute. I'm a shepherd. That means that things attack my lambs like lions and bears. And so when one of them does that, I grab it by the jaw and I club it to death. And so Saul seems pretty convinced by that. Think about it. What's a human, even if he's a giant, compared to a bear? I've never fought a bear, of all things. Got to be kind of difficult. He says something very important. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the power of the lions and bears will rescue me from the power of this Philistine. Who? The Lord. He knows he has God on his side. Remember, it says the Spirit of God took control of him earlier. So it's not by his own power, and he knows that. So now we have a little bit of irony. Saul offers him his armor, but he's not comfortable with it. Shepherds don't wear armor. And so, no, I didn't need that for the lions and the bears. But think about something. What did it say about Saul earlier on when we got introduced to him? He was a head taller than everyone else. Well, I know people through the ages have gotten taller, but perhaps there's someone six feet tall there. If he's a head taller, He's like six foot nine or something like that. He's a really tall guy. So of course, if David were imagining him as the shorter brother, armor's not going to fit. But I want you to keep that point in mind for a little later. He's a very tall guy. Saul's big. So now David arms himself with his shepherd gear. He has his staff, he has his sling, and he picks up five smooth stones from the wadi or the stream. Why are they smooth? Probably because the water runs over them, smooths them out, so they're very aerodynamic. So he gets them ready, and he comes out to fight Goliath. But Goliath does not receive this very well. It's insulting. Would you send this little boy out to fight me, the champion? This is ridiculous. So he's cursing him by the name of his gods. He says, what am I, a dog that you come out with me with a stick? Really insulted. Well, one little point, too, about the five smooth stones. A lot of people miss this. How many Philistine kings were there in towns? Remember the rats and the tumors? So you probably have a representation here. Interesting. A lot of people miss that one. Anyway. David's retort is this, 1 Samuel 17, 46. Today the Lord will conquer you. Who? The Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. David is just an extension. He's a tool. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. These are the very key verses to getting this story right. We'll come back to them later. So, most of you know the story. David, I know that feels, hits Goliath in the forehead with a rock. He goes down, presumably he's knocked out. Then David does what he said he was going to do. He grabs his own sword, insult to injury, literally, and cuts off Goliath's head. So now the Philistines, they're in a panic. They run off, but they're killing them. They're slaughtering them. Their bodies are strewn everywhere, all the way back to towns like Ek Ekron and Gath. That's it. They've won the battle. It gives us 
some information here, which is probably very retrospective. It says that David puts Goliath's head in Jerusalem. Jerusalem doesn't really exist yet. It's Jebus, so it's probably retrospect. And the armor or weapons, some versions say, in the tent. Later, we're going to see that he retrieves these things from Nob. They're not quite in that area. Anyway, after the account, we usually see this. 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 55. As Saul watched David, so it's going backwards, out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. Well, find out who he is, the king, this is Saul, told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Now, there are some of you who might be scratching their heads. Why? Well, because Saul should already know who David is. That's weird. Think about it. He had at least two exchanges with him, right? Can David stay over? Yeah. So he knows who he is. He had him there. It says they developed a great, they loved one another, literally is what it says. They loved one another. They had a great relationship, exchange. He's like the only remedy that Saul has for this evil spirit. Huh? Now, interesting, right? Tried on his armor and everything. Had the whole talk with him. How does he not know who he is? Now, I've seen people wrestle with this. And I've seen pastors do it and scholars do it. It's funny, And they'll say things like, well, he's at a distance, you see. Wrong. They get him, and then he has a face-to-face conversation with him. He's close enough to see him. And he defeated this. What? And when we keep reading the story, we'll know he has a problem. He knows exactly who he is. That's weird. Now, you might also be scratching your head in the opposite direction. Because in certain Bibles, these verses aren't there. If I read these verses in an Orthodox church, for example, they'd go, what? What is he saying? That's not in my Bible. There are also a lot of versions that make a little note that says the oldest translations don't include these verses. They don't have the same problem. So there's an obvious clue going on here. Now, if you're curious, you can go to the beginning of this series Look at the intro and look at the Bible study that follows, and I talk about the earliest copies of the Christian Bible. They're actually in Greek, which is why I'm such a huge fan of Greek, Old and New Testament. So when you go to the earliest copies, this isn't there, the oldest copies. So for more on this, you can also come to the Bible study. I'll be talking about it. There's some pretty remarkable uh, arguments for using that text and that text only. One of them comes surprisingly from St. Augustine. Quite interesting. So these verses being absent in the oldest translations, it explains a lot, clears up a lot of confusion. They say the water is purest at the source. Makes sense. It also explains something else that most Christians don't know about Goliath. In the oldest translations, he's six foot nine, not nine feet tall. Interesting. I want you to think about a little point here on the side, and it'll probably play in better next week when we talk about Saul, their interaction, and David. Six foot nine. Goliath is about a head taller than everyone else. Like who? Saul. So why didn't Saul go out and fight him? 
So that'll answer some questions as to why these things are happening. Now, I want to make an important note here. I mean, this is a real Bible study thing. We're really going to study the Bible on Wednesday, dig into the text, and, and dig into some hard stuff, some difficult questions. Here's an important thing that I want you all to remember. No matter what variations there are, and you can identify this. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know all this stuff. Just pick up two different Bible translations, open up the same page, and it's a little bit different. That's okay, because regardless of any of the differences, translators will just render something. We talked about a very difficult translation on Wednesday. I didn't know the Greek words. I just didn't understand what they meant, so I had to text my Greek teacher, and we are in real time. She's texting me back answers, right? It's very, Greek is very difficult, so one word can mean like one whole sentence, just to translate the word. Greek person's nodding her head. It's very difficult. It's very colorful. It brings up a lot of imagery. So naturally, one translator is going to look at it and say, yeah, but I think it's painting a picture more like this. Or let's do a real literal picture of what's going on here. And that's okay. They're both correct. They're just both a little bit different. So I just want to encourage you guys. It's okay. None of the translations, none of them changes the central meaning of the message and the fact that the whole thing's about Jesus. So it doesn't change the gospel message one single bit. If we subtract these stories, it doesn't change the meaning of the story. If we add the stories, it doesn't change the meaning of the story. Be comfortable in that. So on this topic, things being redacted from the Bible or added to it, a lot of people don't know that in the oldest copies of the Christian Bible, there's an extra psalm in there. Psalm 151. Why do I bring that up? Well, because David has a lot to do with the Psalms. He writes about 74, 75 of them. Remember, he's a musician. I'll stop calling him a band nerd. He's a musician, and so he's a psalmist, and he writes these things, as Jesus says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is controlling him, and so they become scriptures. One of them, the 151, the last one, is about David. So let's take a look at it. And we get more information from it, too. Psalm 151, starting at verse 1. It's David. I was small among my brothers and the youngest of my father's sons. I was shepherd of my father's sheep. My hands made a musical instrument. My fingers strung a harp. Who will tell my Lord? The Lord himself. The Lord hears me. The Lord himself sent his messenger and took me away from my father's sheep. He put special oil on my forehead. That's the anointing. To anoint me. My brothers were good-looking and tall, so here's where we get some of this info. But the Lord didn't take special pleasure in them. I went out to meet the Philistine, that's Goliath, who cursed me by his idols, but I took his own sword out of its sheath and cut off his head. So I removed the shame from the Israelites. So this often redacted psalm gives us a summary of what happened with David and Goliath. It's interesting and useful information. Again, the tale of God using the weak to shame the strong over and over again. God doesn't judge by appearances like we do. Now, although no translation changes what the story is about, we often change what it's all about. All too often, we make the Bible about us, but it's not about us. We tend to do this with a lot, don't we? We make a lot about us, 
You ever have an exchange with someone before they can even finish their sentence, you're already taking offense at it? We make it about us all the time. And so we bring it into our Bible study and make it about us. But you see, the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. This is an important thing to remember. But all too often, we take stories like this one, and they're used to tell people that you can defeat any giants in your life, right? Because you're David. You're not David, period. Nor should you want to be, as we keep reading the story. I'm not David. I made the mistake of trying that without even knowing it. You see, the Bible is not finding, about finding our identity in David. It's about finding our identity in Jesus. The Bible is not about David. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. It begins and ends there. That's it. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. At creation itself, spoiler alert, and he's coming back again. It begins and ends with the Alpha and the Omega. I know I didn't say them right. <laughs> it's about him. That's how the story ends. It's about him fighting our battles. It's okay, the martyrs. He tells them that. When are we going to be redeemed here? Right? Vindication they want. Here are your white robes. I got it. Don't worry. And he does it. We do nothing. I'm not here to give you a false sense of security in yourself. That's what the typical teaching on David and Goliath does. But it's not about us. It's about the Lord. Let's go back to our key verse again. Notice what David says to Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 46. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he he will give you to us. That is how you should read your Bible. Total reliance on the Lord. It's not about anything we do. It's about what the Lord does through us. He uses us as his instruments. That's what I tried to do with the martial arts. I tried to be all that. But I received God's power when I stopped trying to be all that. Now, here's the thing. The Lord used that to teach me a lot of things. Kind of like David in the shepherding field. He had to have the ability to do the sling and all that other stuff. But it was the Lord who made that victory happen. We have to remember that. You see, and this is really hard for us to grasp because we like to control stuff. We don't like trust. We don't like faith very much, if we're being honest. The miracles happened in my life when I did the exact opposite of what the world told me to do. The miracles happened in my life when I let go and let God. The miracles happened in my life when I did the opposite of what my training told me to do. 
Submit. Submit. That's a bad word in MMA, if you watch it. You're not supposed to tap out. That's what the world tells you. Don't tap. Don't give up. But that's precisely what I had to do. When I stopped fighting, when I surrendered to the Lord, I was then able to receive his spirit. I've seen t-shirts say, Jesus didn't tap. Wrong. Wrong. He submitted and he died. He submitted to the Father's will. Not your will, my will, Father, but yours be done. Sorry, dyslexia still exists today. (laughs) But not as much. And that's my point. That is the very key ingredient to Christianity itself. Submission. You might say love, right? Got to submit first, because whose love should we be loving with? It's impossible for us on our own to love greater than God. So until we're filled with the Holy Spirit, how can we really love others around us? And the key to receiving it is total submission to God. You take it. Not my will, but yours, Lord. When we relinquish our will and receive his, when we're baptized, we must submit to receive the Holy Spirit. I told you I had a learning disability, dyslexia. It's a part of my testimony. It's an interesting part. I don't talk about it a lot, and sometimes it comes to my attention. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. We once had a pastor. He kind of spoke a little bit funny, and he didn't like to tell people about it, like why. And once in a while, he'd tell his testimony, but seldomly. It was that he was in a car accident when he was very, very young. Messed him up really bad. His face, his jaw had to be reconstructed, everything. And you could see a scar on his face. And when he found out that the doctors, everybody said, you will never have a job where you'll speak publicly ever. (laughs) Yeah, wrong. God sorted that out. He was a miracle. It was crazy. And so I used to tell him, dude, you have to tell your story more. It should be on the website. Because you're almost being prideful keeping that to yourself, right? Like it would seem like you did it. Tell everybody, you're a miracle, man. This is crazy. It's so funny how sometimes you get advice back from yourself that you tell somebody else. I don't know if you know what it feels like. Maybe you you related to the lineup, right? Maybe. Maybe you can relate to this, but it might be harder for some of you. To be sitting in a classroom, as year after year after year, sitting in a classroom feeling worthless. There's always the rejection, right? Oh, the band nerd, okay, there's that rejection. Now you got that. Then you're sitting at a desk. You look around, you have no idea what's happening. No idea. Like, literally, we're doing fractions, right? You got dyslexia. How hard are fractions? Forget it. Forget it. And so I'm looking around, and everybody, every single kid is busy at work. And I don't even know what they're doing. How does that feel? Horrible. You're worthless. My mom was pretty good, but my dad was less sympathetic. He didn't understand it, and that's okay. But to be told that at school, then when you go home, then you have to stay inside because you failed. Then you have to go to summer school 
They don't have AC in New York, but it gets real hot. So that's like prison, right? You practice your instrument. That was my only outlet. It was the only thing I was good at, but everyone thought it was uncool. And so what did I do? I did things on my own. First, I try to self-medicate, right? So drinking and drugging. And then I'm awesome, right? So it's the 80s, and I grow my hair out real long. And now I do shows, and I get my attention that way. That's how I get it, because it's immediate. And I'm cool. The girls like me now. And so I'm 16 years old in a bar, smoking and drinking. But it feels good immediately, doesn't it? But it didn't work. So let's try something else. I'm going to get huge and go beat people up. I'm going to make a living out of it. It doesn't work. I tried to do this on my own. I know how rejection feels. And I know what happens when we try to solve it on our own. But here's what I want to tell you. When I gave up, when I hit a wall, I said, forget it. I'm going to let God take care of it. A miracle happened. Think about it. I could barely read. I read a lot, for those of you who know me. Did it look like I was struggling reading the scriptures? How does a kid with dyslexia do that? It's not rewritten for me or anything like that. There aren't any extra accommodations here. And I want you to think about this. So now I'm giving myself advice that I was giving to that pastor. I want you to think about this for a minute. Couldn't read English so bad that I would make jokes. Ask my wife when we first got together. Make jokes. Why would anyone want to read a book when you can just watch the movie? They're stupid. What a waste of time. It was a common joke. Why? Insecure. That's why we make fun of other people, because we're insecure. I go from that to learning how to read ancient Greek. I'll give you a page of that in a couple of months. Good luck. It's hard. She'll tell you, somehow, not so much for me. How's that possible? You reminded me, didn't you? That's not normal. <laughs> and I forget. It's because of God. All glory to God. If I fixed it, I could take credit for it. If the doctor fixed it, they could take credit for it. Nobody can. All glory to God. He healed me. That's amazing. It was when I did the opposite of what the world told me to do. That is just my encouragement. If you hear anything else today, you're going to go out and you're going to hear all kinds of things. You're going to hear remedies. You're going to just please stop listening to it. Just listen to what the Word of God says. Just please stop listening to it. It's all meant to dupe us into division. That's all it is. Just stop it. Just listen to God. Listen to God. Submit. Slow down. Receive the Spirit because it'll heal you. Be in God's Word more. That's my encouragement. You see, I tried equipping myself with the worldly armor, right? It looked pretty good on the outside. It wasn't working. Try something else. It wasn't working. Think about this. David could have worn the armor. David could have worn the armor, and he didn't. Instead, he was equipped with what? The armor of God. And that's what we, Ephesians 6, should be equipping ourselves with. When I finally equipped myself with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. I had the shield of faith. 
That's what we need. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if you know this well, you know I did it kind of backwards, and I did it for a reason, because everyone forgets about the shoes of peace. We're supposed to be messengers of what? Not anxiety, not anger. Those are all things of the flesh and the world, and they want us to carry it, spread it around like the disease it is. It's a disease. No. Shoes of what? Peace. We're supposed to be vehicles of love, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Ah, Galatians 5. Those are the things we're supposed to be spreading. That's my encouragement for you today. I want to just briefly, I know we're running a little bit longer. I apologize for that, but what are you going to do? Tell me to stop? No. <laughs> but I just, I just feel that this is God speaking right now, and I just don't want to shut him up right now. Is that all right? Who's going to say no? Again, I keep baiting you into these things. But just to take an extra minute, I want to invite those who want to be baptized to be baptized. And some have asked me, why don't you do like an altar call? Or why, you know, why don't you do that kind of thing? Because in my years in ministry, I've seen way too many people get drummed up by the music and excited and run up to the altar, and then you don't see them again. You know, it's weird. They're not like thinking about anything. And if you look at what Jesus said, he says, this is a very conscious decision. He has so many parables he uses. You know, what would a king do? We just send off his 10,000 troops to fight against the what? 20,000 troops? He warns, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through some stuff. The enemy is not worried about you when you're not saying the gospel, when you're not preaching the gospel, when you're not saying anything about Jesus. He's not going to bother with you. But when you say, I love Jesus and everybody else should know about him, oh, he's coming for you. And you better be ready. So what we do here at C3 is somewhere in between what you may have seen in like the Protestant church or more charismatic churches where people just rush up, Jesus didn't say to do it that way. And not quite what a very traditional church would do, which would make you go to like when I was a kid, CCD or some of those other things. You have to take all the classes. Somewhere in the middle. So what I want to invite you to do is if you're interested in being baptized, reach out to the leadership. They're going to tell you how you can do that through the app, through a connection card there. Come talk to me. We still do that nowadays. Just approach me. I just want some time to sit with you and then affirm a bunch of questions. I'll give you a bunch of questions, some reading, and just, just really know what you're getting into, and we'd be more than happy to baptize you. As a church, you should know uh, we have plans to put in a baptismal tub. The old thinking was that, oh, someone wants to get baptized. We'll go to the beach, but Weather, the water gets cold, whatever it is, it, it just adds another logistic. We're going to try to get rid of it. So we're talking this morning about putting a, a baptismal tub in there. And so, um, yeah, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this church that is the body of Christ, the people, not the building. But we do thank you for the walls that house us and allow us together, allow us to be a blessing to the community, through the cafe, through the spreading of the gospel message. I thank you for it all. I thank you for the willingness of the people to come here this morning and be fed by the word, your word, this morning. I hope it touches minds and hearts. It motivates people to submit to you, to be vehicles of your peace, your love, your kindness, your gentleness, your self-control. Thank you, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.